Get your news in less than three minutes, three times per day with the Al Jazeera news updates. Just ask your home device to play the news by Al Jazeera or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Just a quick warning. This episode contains descriptions of self-harm and suicidal ideation that may not be suitable for all listeners. We're going to start with the story of how one man's lying eyes screwed a city out of tens of millions of dollars. The year is 2005, and the city of St. John, New Brunswick, is in trouble. Now, St. John is an industrial town, but one of its most important industries, shipbuilding, was pretty much dead. The population had been declining for years, and the city's budget was teetering on the edge of collapse. So when Irving Oil approached the mayor of St. John with a proposal, he was keen to listen. Irving Oil owned the refinery in St. John and was one of the city's most important employers. And they had come to a deal with a Spanish energy company to build a liquefied natural gas terminal on a big chunk of land that Irving Oil owned. The project would have been a massive $750 million investment. But Irving Oil told the mayor of St. John that the project couldn't happen unless the city gave them a massive break on their property taxes. The project just wouldn't be profitable otherwise, and the Spanish energy company would be forced to walk away. The mayor entered into secret negotiations with Kenneth Irving, the CEO of Irving Oil. Kenneth is a third-generation Irving. He's tall, a little bit nerdy, and had a reputation as a smart, kind manager. But the Irvings are tough negotiators, and Kenneth was no exception. The secret talks were tense, and they lasted months. And then one day, the mayor of St. John approached city council and told them the news. He had offered the Irvings a deal. They would only have to pay $500,000 a year on the most valuable piece of property in the city for 25 years. And here's the kicker. If city council didn't take the deal by midnight that day, the project was dead. And that massive LNG terminal the city needed would never be built. The city was giving up over $200 million in tax revenue to get this built, but they were desperate for the investment. City council approved the deal. Unfortunately for the residents of St. John, a few years later, they discovered that they had been screwed. Irving Oil won a multi-million dollar 25-year tax deal at Canaport in 2005 after convincing city council that financial margins on the project were so thin could only afford to pay $500,000 a year in property tax, less than 10% of the going rate. But according to confidential documents about Canaport released by Irving's partner in the deal, Repsol, suggests that the deal was a lot richer than St. John was told. The project would have been profitable even without the tax breaks. To many St. John residents, it looked like Irving Oil had lied to them. The Irvings walked away with a killing and deprived a poor city of tens of millions of dollars of tax revenues that could have helped out its citizens. Here's City Councilor Jerry Lowe speaking to the CBC. That's where we're hurting so bad, right? There's a lot of money being made out there, and it's not coming our way. And for the mayor of St. John, one of the most humiliating parts of this whole saga was the quote that he'd given the press on the day that the deal was approved. Quote, 
I asked him very clearly and looked into his eyes and said, Kenneth, you look into my eyes and tell me if this does not happen, will this facility not be here? And he very clearly said, yes, it's true, unquote. Well, Kenneth's eyes had lied, but when it comes to business, the Irvings are ruthless. And Kenneth Irving was about to find out just how ruthless his own family could be. Because even though at this moment, he was one of the most powerful men in New Brunswick, in just a few short years, he'd lose it all in one of the most tragic ways imaginable. If you ever drive into St. John, New Brunswick, you'll pass by Canada's biggest oil refinery. And you're sure to see six royal blue letters emblazoned on six lily white storage tanks. I-R-V-I-N-G. And that's how you know who runs this town. Hell, that's how you know who runs the whole damn province. For nearly a century, the Irving families run New Brunswick like a feudal state. They're the largest landowners by far. They're the biggest players in forestry, oil, construction, shipbuilding, media, and so many other industries. One in 12 New Brunswickers, well, they work for the Irvings. And that means if you yourself don't work for them, you probably have a family member who does. They own almost all of the newspapers, and even the premier of the province himself is a former Irving executive. To the Irvings, what's best for their family and what's best for New Brunswick, well, it's the same thing. But while they're one of Canada's richest families, New Brunswick is still the country's poorest province. So how does a single family so thoroughly dominate an entire province? And what happens when that family starts to fracture and split apart at the seams? I'm Archie Mann, and from Canada Land, this is Commons. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, therapy online that has served over 3 million people around the world. And BetterHelp is available here in Canada. A lot of people have various blocks or reasons why they don't just reach out for that help. And one thing you'll hear people say is they just don't have the time. I would like to mount a different uh, argument here, which is that if you are talking to a mental health professional, if you're if you're chatting with somebody about your life and about your priorities, you can clear away a lot of the clutter. You can actually find yourself with more time because you have a better sense of what's important to you. Like it's an investment that can pay off even in that practical way of, of organizing your life a bit better. These are some of the advantages in, in the long run of having something like BetterHelp in your life. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. And because you listen to the show, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. Once again, it's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. Kenneth Irving was the heir apparent to the most important piece of the Irving empire. In the 1990s, he was the number two man at Irving Oil, and he was poised to take over for his father, Arthur, who had run Irving Oil since the 70s. Now, the Irvings rarely speak to the press, but one exception was a 1990s CBC documentary in which they all opened up. Kenneth Irving is the number two man at Irving Oil, answering only to his father, Arthur. One day, the entire oil business will be his to run, and he knows the refinery is the key to it all. You know, my cousins and I, although we get along very well on a personal and professional level, we're very different people. 
but because we all run very different businesses, it doesn't, uh, doesn't pose a, any issue. Kenneth was born to be in the refining business. From a very young age, he was trained to be a model Irving employee. And I can remember the, the shaking hand drill that my grandfather used to make my brother and I do before he took us uh, through the paper mills or the refinery on the weekend. We'd have to practice looking at him in the eye and shaking his hand and saying, how do you do? You know, it was important to, uh, for him for us to be very polite and respectful of anyone we met along the way. When he was 17, his grandfather and the family patriarch, K.C. Irving, which is short for Kenneth Collin, asked his grandson to take his middle name. It was a sign that one day the younger Irving would take over Irving Oil, the crown jewel of the family empire. Kenneth worked his way through entry-level oil jobs both in New Brunswick and in Alberta, and he moved up quickly in the company. He would take over operations of Irving Oil itself in 2000. But his father, Arthur Irving, was still the man in charge. Arthur Irving is an imposing man who speaks his mind. And we want to be successful, and we want to have the sense of accomplishment and doing a good job. That's it. We're not in it for anything else. We want to employ a lot of good people. We want our employees to be proud of us. We want to be proud of them, and we want to keep going down the road and making this part of the country a better place to live. That's our drive every day, every day, every day, and not quit. The Irvings, including Arthur and Kenneth, always professed their love for New Brunswick and the Maritimes. Here's Arthur again, pretty much saying that he'll fight anyone who takes a shot at the Maritimes. Enjoy this part of the world. There's no other part of the world I'd rather live in than the Maritimes. It's all right for us to joke amongst ourselves about the Maritimers, you know, but when somebody from outside takes us on, boy, they've picked on the wrong outfit. We'll defend you, we'll defend the Maritimes, Atlantic Canada, every time. And that's it. So it's straight up with us. You get what you see. The relationship between soft-spoken Kenneth, the heir apparent, and his hard-driving father, Arthur, is going to reshape the Irving Empire forever. But before we get to that, we need to better understand the Irving Empire for what it is, because it's unlike anything else in Canada. The Irving Empire was founded almost a century ago by Arthur's father, Kenneth Colin Irving, who everyone just called K.C. Irving. K.C. Irving has done something very unusual. That's Bruce Livesey. He's a journalist, the author of The Thieves of Bay Street, and the first guest that I ever had on this show. Most companies focus on one area. K.C. Irving decided he was going to build his empire around many sectors. He adopted what was called vertical integration, which was, if you're going to publish a newspaper, well, why not you own the newspaper, but own the pulp and paper mill that produced the newsprint, and also own the forests and grow the wood, you basically own the whole production chain. But what that's given him is complete ironclad control over a region. And as the empire solidifies in one area, it just expands into the next. So he is a very unique corporate entity in that regard. When he was a young man in the 1930s, Casey Irving started out in business by selling cars. Then it was gasoline, then it was transportation, then building buses and making airplane veneer, then it was forestry, then mills, then steel, then shipping, then concrete, then shipbuilding, and then it was the refinery. 
By the 1960s, K.C. Irving was the most powerful man in New Brunswick by far. In New Brunswick, K.C. Irving is blamed for just about anything wrong with the province. Perhaps because he owns so much of it, something like $400 million worth. K.C. inspired a kind of awe in many New Brunswickers. Just listen to this clip from that CBC documentary. My cameraman and I were on an assignment. We were traveling down this street, and all of a sudden, he hit the brakes, pulled a U-turn, pulled up to this curb, and said, there's K.C. I looked out of the window, across the street, and this is what I saw. An elderly man wearing a black beret walking along the street. My cameraman's response was part awe, part reverence. It was the first time I saw the deep emotional response many Maritimers have to the Irvings. That's how many New Brunswickers view the Irvings. They're both feared and revered. In the 1970s, Casey Irving did something that at the time was pretty unprecedented. He moved all of the businesses to Bermuda in order to avoid paying Canadian taxes. This is among the outrageous things about the Irvings, is not only do they take vast amounts of money of Canadian taxpayers' money, but then they, they squirrel it away in offshore tax havens. And while he spent half the year in the Caribbean, he appointed his three sons to take over respective parts of the empire. Arthur Irving, who you heard from earlier, was given Irving Oil, the most prestigious business of the lot. Casey Irving died in 1992, but the power of the Irving family didn't die with him. Even today, the Irvings still get what they want out of government at almost every turn. It's the perfect example of what I call the captured state. This is where the purpose of government is to serve the interests of corporations. To really understand the power that the Irvings wield in New Brunswick, let's just take a look at one of the many industries they dominate, forestry. Now, forestry has always been one of the most important parts of the provincial economy, Here's CBC reporter Jacques Poitra speaking at a Canada Land Live show in 2015. Well, I mean, New Brunswick essentially began as what, I mean, one author called it a timber colony. I mean, it, it was built around cutting wood and sawing wood and using wood to build ships and, and other things. Lately, in recent years, many mills have closed. And what has happened is that Irving has taken over more of the leases that were abandoned by some of the other companies that closed their mills and left. So I think it's fair to say that Irving now occupies a bigger piece of the pie than they ever did before. And consequently, governments feel a certain pressure to accommodate them because their mills are scattered around the province, and so there are a lot of local communities that feel they depend on those jobs. The Irvings don't own most of the land that they harvest their trees from. It's crown land that belongs to the province, which then leases it to the Irvings. But the province has to balance the need for jobs today with the need to maintain the forests for future generations. And since 2001, the Irvings have pushed the government to significantly increase the amount of land that could be logged. They commissioned a report that pretty much said it was in the province's interest to do just that. But environmentalists, small woodlot owners, and a lot of everyday people pushed back. The issue became hugely controversial in New Brunswick, and the Conservative Premier at the time, Bernard Lord, delayed making any decision, instead commissioning more studies. But in 2006, Lord lost an election to the Liberal Sean Graham. And almost instantly, Graham's government brought the issue of giving the Irvings more forests back up. They argued that all those people who'd argued against the forestry plan didn't really represent the public. His government instead pointed to 5,000 letters the government had been sent in support of more logging. There was only one problem. 
3,300 of the cards came from Irving employees or contractors. Another big chunk were created by pressing a button on a website called More Trees Are The Answer, which was run by the Irvings. All told, there were only nine actual letters that either weren't form letters or didn't come from Irving employees. The debate about how to use the forests lasted until 2014 through numerous governments, both liberal and conservative, but at the end of the day, the Irvings got what they wanted. The government agreed to open up a lot more area to forestry, and the biggest beneficiary was the Irvings Forestry Company. Now, we should note that the Irvings did build a pretty big mill after they got this concession. One of the main ways that the Irvings get what they want is by threatening to shut down their operations or move them elsewhere. Here's Bruce Livesey again. It's a basically a form of economic blackmail. And because the political class is so weak in that region, they cave. The reason they keep using it is because it works. Because sure enough, either the provincial or the municipal governments will cave and give them what they want. And critics of Irving business practices, well, they've sometimes found themselves out of a job. Take the issue of glyphosate. It's one of the most commonly used pesticides in the world. And in recent years, it's been credibly linked to cancer. But in order for the type of forestry that the Irvings do to be as profitable as possible, they need to use glyphosate. When the chief medical officer in New Brunswick began to look at the health impacts of, of, of glyphosate, the province fired her. This happened in 2015. And while the province has denied that they fired her because she was looking into glyphosate, they've never provided an actual reason why she was terminated. And she was given $720,000 in severance. She's not the only person to be fired while they were studying glyphosate. Rod Cumberland is a scientist who was employed by the New Brunswick government to study deer populations. He discovered the deer population was being wiped out, and it was because of the spraying of glyphosate, because the glyphosate destroys hardwood trees which the deer feed on. So essentially, they were being starved out of existence. And he wrote a report, and nobody cared, and government didn't do anything about it, typically, because this, again, would have been challenging the Irvings and the use of glyphosate. Cumberland eventually left government employ, and he went public about his research. But that didn't exactly sit well with various levels of government and the forestry lobby. An alliance was formed between the provincial and federal governments, the Irvings, and other forestry companies to counter Cumberland's claims about glyphosate. And they set up a website, and they hired scientists from the federal government to do tours of New Brunswick and Nova Scotia to basically try to argue there's nothing wrong with glyphosate. And so there was a complete open collusion between the two levels of government and the Irvings to fight a educated wildlife biologist who was raising legitimate concerns about the use of glyphosate. And just this year, Cumberland was fired from his teaching position at the Maritime College of Forestry Technology. He believes it was because of his advocacy on the issue of glyphosate, which the college does deny. Here he is speaking to the CBC after his dismissal. I'm not opposed to the forest industry. I'm not opposed to... You know, there's all kinds of ways that we do forestry in the province. And, uh, you know, but at the same time, there's, uh, you know, my thing always has been we need to look at all the science. I'd be lying if I said there was not pressure exerted in the past from different organizations. There's basically two sides to this issue. You know, there's the old, outdated stuff that was done short term, very quickly, um, sponsored mostly by industry that says, uh, you know, glyphosate is, you know, you, you can drink it. Um, then there's... The whole other side that says that it's very problematic. Science 
says what science says, and there's a lot there. Former executive director of the Institute, Gerald Redman, agrees with Cumberland. He told Bruce Livesey that forestry representatives on the board, including those from Irving Businesses, had it out for Cumberland. Now, J.D. Irving Limited totally denies that they in any way interfered with the Institute or got Rod Cumberland fired. Now that you've sat through our lecture about the last two decades of New Brunswick forestry policy, it's time to get back to that most essential part of the Irving Empire, Irving Oil. What you're hearing is a 1990 ad for Irving gas stations. And because Irving means people, and people means Irving, let's get back to the people at the heart of this story. Specifically, a father and son. As we told you earlier, Arthur Irving had been running Irving Oil since the 1970s. Here he is again in that CBC documentary, talking about Irving Oil's market share in New Brunswick. Arthur Irving runs Irving Oil, and although initially he wanted his son Kenneth to do all the talking for the company for the purposes of this project, he couldn't resist telling off a reporter who suggested to him that Irving's market size inside the Maritimes might be a little big. Well, big, you know, what are you talking about? The thing is that market share, market share, you know, the thing is if you have 10% of the market down here in the oil business, you know what happens to you? You go broke. That means you're bust. So you're good to nobody. And Kenneth, Arthur's son, was his chosen successor. Arthur and Kenneth's relationship had always been close, but contentious. Here's Kenneth Irving looking back in a video that he produced in 2017. You know, my dad and I had a a complicated relationship, a really intense relationship. There was a lot of very good things in my relationship with my dad, things that I still, memories that I still hold very dear. You know, we went on many canoe trips together. He was my best man at my wedding. You know, I... Arthur appointed his son Kenneth to be CEO of Irving Oil in 2000, and Kenneth relished the chance to build on his family's legacy. You know, to be in Irving Oil was, was very special because it was my grandfather's company. He, when he started his, out on his own, when he built his first company, he moved away from home and moved to St. John away from Bucktouche, and, you know, he started uh, Irving Oil in 1924, and, that, and, and I was in his company. I was, you know, I was going to work and going into what once was once his office, you know, and it was more than just running a business for me. It was, the, the responsibility felt more important than that. I felt I had a responsibility to the community. I felt a responsibility to the people that I worked with. It was incredible. How was I ever going to match that? And while he was in charge, Irving Oil thrived. Between 2000 and 2008, the value of the company quadrupled by some estimates. But while Kenneth was respected within the company, there was one man who he couldn't seem to please. His father, Arthur. Arthur has always been a hard man. When he divorced his first wife, Joan Carlyle, she discovered that almost everything in their home belonged to Irving Oil, significantly reducing the property that she was entitled to. And after the divorce, the children, including Kenneth, stayed with Arthur and rarely had the chance to even speak with their mother. 
And while Kenneth was CEO of Irving Oil, Arthur was still chair of the board. A source within the company told the Globe and Mail that, quote, I've never seen anything like it in a corporate setting. He didn't hide his disdain for the path we were on. In 2008, the Great Recession struck and the price of oil collapsed. Irving Oil was now in hard times. And Arthur's ire turned towards his son, Kenneth. But Kenneth was harboring a secret from his father. Since his 20s, Kenneth had suffered from depression. It was something he hadn't shared with almost anyone, especially not his father. As the business faltered, Kenneth felt that he was failing his dad. And I really felt that I had let my father down, my, my family down. I felt, I felt terrible about myself. I hated myself. I, I, uh, I loathed myself. I couldn't stand being in my skin. He became obsessed with making his father happy, something he couldn't seem to do. But uh, as, as I grew older and became more uh, recognized for, for certain things, it didn't, it, didn't, it didn't bring happiness to my dad. And I became very uh, overly consumed by uh, wanting him to feel good about uh, the achievements or successes that I was having. And... Um, and I, and I was, it was having the opposite effect. And, and that, was, that was really hard for me to, to sort of to process. And I should warn you that things from here on out are about to get quite dark and may not be suitable for all listeners. While he was trying to steer the company through tough economic times and deal with his father questioning his every decision, Kenneth began to hurt himself. A lot of people turned to to drugs or alcohol or and um i i ended up in uh getting involved with self-harm that um hurting myself created a pain that would distract me from the intense feelings that i was having at the time and uh it's even really strange for me to tell you because i, I never thought i'd be that guy kenneth would stare at himself in the mirror plagued with self-loathing and then he'd raise his fist and punch himself in the face repeatedly until the flesh around his eye was blackened. It was hard for me when I looked at the mirror in the morning to accept myself, uh, to see the state that my, my face had um, become. I had harmed myself, and my daughters were looking at my face. Um, I still think of it now, and I still um, feel... Like I, I was letting them down, you know. From the outside, it looked like he had everything, but Kenneth was suffering immensely. It doesn't, it doesn't really make sense, you know. I considered myself all the way up to this point in my life, and and most especially now, very, a very lucky person. I was given enormous opportunity. I, I was blessed to have had a great marriage and, and you know, I have really close relations with my four daughters. I have lifelong friends. I had a dream job. I lived in New Brunswick. Come on. <laughs> it was awesome. Um, how could someone that's so blessed want to, um, you know, just 
think that that's a, a rational uh, option to find peace, really, in the thought of of um, ending ending my life. Yeah, it was difficult. Kenneth tried to hide his depression from his father and from the company, but at a certain point it became too much, and he finally asked his wife Tasha for help. And I, I just had the courage that morning uh, when I woke up in St. John to tell her. I said, Dad, "Don't, don't leave me alone." And when I told her that, she didn't need to say anything. She knew, but uh, I, uh, I, it, it, it didn't get better. It started to get worse. For a few months, he carried on working and traveling, but he was never left alone again. And then one day in April 2010, he hurt himself again. And it became clear that he needed more drastic help. A psychiatrist came to the house and recommended Kenneth check himself into a facility for his own safety. So he decided to leave, but not before visiting Irving Oil one last time. With his face still horribly bruised, Kenneth showed his psychiatrist around his office, joking to employees that he'd hit his face on a door. It didn't fool anyone. And then he departed for Boston to check into a psychiatric ward. A few months later, Kenneth would have his last face-to-face conversation with his father. He won't say what they spoke about. But soon, the company would announce that Kenneth Irving was no longer CEO of Irving Oil. Yesterday's news that Kenneth Irving has taken an indefinite leave of absence from the company definitely started people talking about what was going to happen next with the corporation. We still have no independent confirmation of why Kenneth is leaving, but company-owned newspapers quoted an email from the CEO talking about a health setback. Kenneth was replaced as CEO not long after. Except for a one-minute phone call, Kenneth's father, Arthur, has never spoken to him again. And Kenneth has never even stepped foot in St. John since then, besides to pack up his house. It took Kenneth a long time to return to any kind of normalcy. And while he was struggling, Kenneth went to court in Bermuda against the rest of his family. What we know about the court case is truly heartbreaking. While there's still some dispute about what the case was really about, Kenneth made a few conditions for any kind of settlement. He wanted a retirement party at Irving Oil that would acknowledge his contributions to the company. He wanted a family meeting with his siblings, who he also wasn't speaking to at the time, attended by a professional mediator. And he wanted the settlement to force his father to come to a family activity with him. None of that happened. Eventually, Kenneth did get the help he needed, and today, he's in touch with his siblings again. He seems to have a happy life with his wife and daughters. While he isn't involved in any of the Irving businesses anymore, he now has his own business that has to do with fixing urban congestion. And he made that video that you've been hearing from, spoke to the Globe and Mail, in order to open up about his story in the hopes it might help other people who are suffering from depression. He's tried to reconcile with his father, sending him multiple letters, but Arthur has never replied. Kenneth says that he doesn't blame his father for what happened to him. So while that might seem kind of harsh, you know, how things went between my dad and I, um, I, don't, I don't blame him for, for anything. I mean, it's, it's, it's my own life to, to take care of. 
But at the end of that interview with the Globe and Mail, reporter Eric Anderson asked him one last time about whether or not he cares what his father thinks. Quote, I can't think about that, he told her. I won't crawl under a rock. If he can't love me, maybe he will respect me. And then Kenneth wept openly. Today, Arthur Irving is not speaking terms with most of his children from his first marriage. Instead, it appears that his daughter Sarah, from his second marriage, is poised to take over the business. Kenneth Irving has been undeniably brave when it comes to telling his story. It's hard not to look at the story of Kenneth and Arthur Irving and see the son as a straightforward good guy and Arthur as some kind of villain. But things are never so simple. After all, Kenneth Irving is the same man you heard about at the top of the show. The one who looked into the eyes of the mayor of St. John and promised that the terminal couldn't be built unless the city gave them tens of millions of dollars off of their property taxes. That wasn't true, and it cost taxpayers of St. John a lot of money. Money that could have been used for fire services, police, roads, and public housing. And that was just one of the many examples of the government largesse that's been handed to the Irvings over the years. According to a CBC investigation, the provincial government has foregone over $380 million in property taxes over the last 40 years. And a huge chunk of that went to Irving businesses. That's money that could have been used on mental health services to help people who can't afford the kind of treatment that Kenneth Irving got. Bruce Livesey grew up in New Brunswick, and he's seen the province decay under the Irvings' domination. New Brunswick is the poorest province in Canada, has the lowest median income. There's a weird provincial pride that this corporation is run by New Brunswickers and owned by this New Brunswick family. What they don't really see is that it's a parasitic outfit. I mean, they're completely parasitic. They take so much wealth and have taken so much wealth out of that province and have returned so little. The Irvings are still the most powerful people in New Brunswick, but things are changing. For one, it's no longer a single company. In the 2000s, the three sons of Casey Irving split the businesses between themselves. And attitudes towards the Irvings may also be changing. Even though they still control the newspapers, social media is out of their grasp. The Irving dynasty has lasted for a hundred years. Whether it'll last another hundred is still an open question. That's your episode of Commons for the week. This episode relied on reporting done by Bruce Livesey, Jacques Potra, Aaron Anderson, and many others. Now, this episode dealt with some pretty serious stuff, especially near the end. And if you feel like you may need someone to talk to, you can call or text Suicide Prevention and Support at Crisis Service Canada at 1-833-456-4566. They're available 24-7. That number again is one 833 456-4566. If you're looking for some election coverage, make sure to subscribe to Oppo, which is going weekly right now. If you want to get in touch with us, you can tweet us at CanadaLandCommons, that's C-M-N-S. You can also email me, Archie at CanadaLandShow.com. This episode was produced by myself and Jordan Cornish. Our managing editor is Kevin Sexton. 
And our music is by Nathan Burley and Kevin Sexton. If you like what we do, please help us make this show. You can support us and get ad-free podcasts by going to patreon.com slash Canada Land.